Welcome to The Lens, hosted by Catalysis, where we get a glimpse inside healthcare organizations that are transforming to a culture of improvement to deliver continually higher value outcomes for patients, staff, and communities. Visit createvalue.org for more information about Catalysis. Welcome back to The Lens. I'm your host, Peter Mariahazi. Today, it is my pleasure to be joined by Amy Mervek and Mike Radke, faculty of a virtual pilot workshop we're hosting at the beginning of 2024. Their workshop, called Making Change Stick, focuses on the many hidden factors that can be barriers to individual and organizational change efforts, how to make these factors visible and address them. Mike, Amy, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Peter. It's good to be here. Well, to start, let's, you know, Mike, the podcast listeners, the Lens listeners have met you in the past, but start, how about sharing a bit about yourselves and your work with our listeners so they know who you are? Sure. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a physical therapist by background, but I got into uh, management a number of years ago, and I was working for a health system in Northeastern Wisconsin called ThetaCare, who was... Uh, was really one of the pioneers with this lean transformation effort. Uh, so I've had a number of uh, operational roles, improvement roles within that organization. Um, I have uh, been, but for the last seven years, have been working as a both as an independent consultant as well as faculty with Catalysis, you know, teaching a number of workshops, uh, supporting folks uh, transition into a lean management system, and uh, you know, recently partnered up with Amy and and tapping into some of her expertise as well in how do we help manage change and how do we help make change stick. So uh, it's been a great journey. Great to have you. Amy, how about you? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah. So I use coaching and facilitation to help leaders navigate complex challenges with confidence. And the way that's looking for me these days is as an independent consultant, as a coach, and um, prior to that, I worked for a, a hospice and palliative care organization, which is when I first met Mike many years ago. Uh, we were both very uh, steeped and involved in um, how to help other people make important changes, and we're able to collaborate on a couple projects there. And really, this um, new um, evolution of the work into coaching um, has grown out of that uh, lean background uh, that I had prior to this. Thank you for that, Amy. Amy, you know, um, one of the constants we say is, is change, but what are some of the factors that prevent changes from really sticking? Well, I think we can all relate to change not sticking to times where we were able to make some positive change, either on a personal goal or organizational goal, but we weren't able to sustain those changes over time. A big factor is that we really don't understand the full nature of the challenge. And specifically, we don't understand how those really hard to accomplish change goals. Yes, they require us to learn new things. They require us to alter our behaviors, but they also require us to examine our internal values and beliefs and mindsets. And this is something we may not have as much practice with because our default is to use what Mike and I talk about as the New Year's model of change, where we look at the behaviors that are getting in the way and we, we go about changing them. We do what we know we're supposed to do. 
But then a few months later, we're back to the old behaviors. And it's not because we're weak. And it's not because we lack some kind of willpower. It's because those old behaviors are actually serving a different goal. And that's a really strong one that's tied to those beliefs and values. And what makes it even trickier is that it's sometimes hidden. We're not fully aware of it. So it's kind of hijacking us. And until we really understand that hidden goal, we're going to continue to get hijacked and that change won't stick. Wow. And so there's multiple types of change. So, Mike, I, I have heard you guys use the phrase technical change and adaptive one. What What's the difference between those two? Yeah, Peter. Well, when I, when I think of a technical change, I like to think of something that has clearly defined problem where the solutions don't require us to change anything about our beliefs or behaviors. But instead, it's based off of some known practice, technology, other evidence-based or process improvement solution. So, so for example, using a medical example, if I have arthritis in my knee, a technical sol- change or a solution could be a surgery. You know, although it's not a simple solution, it's known, it's evidence-based, it's an approach that at least for the procedure, you know, doesn't require me to do anything differently, except put my trust in the surgical team. They address the problem using technical means. And in contrast to that, if we look at an adaptive change, it requires people, as the name implies, to adapt, to change something within themselves, such as how they see a situation, uh, and their behaviors. Uh, you know, so a medical example around that would be if I go to the doctor and I'm diagnosed with high cholesterol. And the doctor tells me I need to change my habits, my lifestyle practices. These require me to adapt, to change things about myself, which, you know, as we know, can be very complex and challenging. And as you can imagine, the problem occurs when we kind of confuse a situation as needing a technical fix or just a technical fix and treat it as such when the change is adaptive or it's both. So again, a common medical example of this is when a patient is told to make a personal change, such as that high cholesterol example I gave before, and it's treated as a simple technical solution. Here, here's the instructions, go make it happen, change your lifestyle. And in these cases, you know, we kind of underestimate the barriers that may exist in making those personal changes. And as a result, a lot of times they don't happen. So, you know, we chalk that up sometimes to patients not being compliant. But as Amy alluded to, you know, when we recognize this is part of a system uh, and part of the appreciation for there's more to it than just the technical, helps us understand more depth to the problem and really identify both maybe the technical causes, but also these adaptive ones. Interesting. It's it's very much owning it and 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 changing your behavior, and that's something we talk about obviously at catalysis a lot. So, Amy, you, you, you've used immunity to change method. What is that? Help us understand that. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a it's an approach designed to help reveal those adaptive parts of the problem and the limiting mindsets that are keeping this kind of system in place. So there's the kind of diagnostic phase, and it's also a process for helping overcome these limitations. It was developed by uh, Dr. Robert Keegan and Dr. Lisa Leahy, 
They're both developmental psychologists on faculty at Harvard. And they also have an organization called Minds at Work, which really um, uh, continues this work. And they use that metaphor of the immune system to help explain what's going on. I think it's great for this particular audience we're, we're talking with. Um, so I'm gonna explain that a little bit. Um, we have physical immune systems and they detect and respond to threats to our health. And they do this without us having to think about it. Like it's going on, they keep us healthy. It's a beautiful thing. But sometimes the immune system gets it wrong and they see a threat where there really isn't one. So that can show up as an autoimmune disease, hypersensitivity. So Keegan and Leahy talk about also the psychological immune system, which also protects us from perceived threats. But this time there's psychological ones like worries, anxieties, fears. And just like our physical ones, our psychological immune system can get it wrong too. It can be working to keep us safe, sometimes without us even recognizing it, but it's really getting in the way of us making those important changes that we genuinely want to make. So what this immunity to change process does, it's very structured and you start by identifying a really important improvement goal to you. Then you list all the behaviors that are working against it, that get in the way of that goal. Now this next step, you imagine doing the opposite of those behaviors. And as you're doing that imagining, you really pay attention to what worry or fear comes up for you. And what this signals is your competing goal. It's the threat that your psychological immune system is protecting you from. And when you understand that and what drives it, it's the key to unlocking the stuckness of your change efforts. And then the last step in all of this is the diagnostic part of it is really a deeper one because you have to identify assumptions you're making about yourself, others, the world that explain why you hold this competing goal so tightly. And this is what we call in immunity to change the big assumption. Wow. So Mike, I've, I, it, I'm, I'm paying attention to Amy and I'm applying this to myself. And once I've uncovered these hidden goals and assumption, this psychological immunity system that's preventing me from change, wh what do I do next? How do I address yeah. that? Yeah. So, so once you've done, you've done that valuable work in identifying these hidden assumptions, um, really important step is then to take some time to do something called self-observation. So what this means is, it's paying attention to those situations where this big assumption is really at play. Like with any problem solving, you know, once we see the true problem, it can lead us more effectively to taking some initial steps to address it. So as we observe ourselves, we're watching for what are our behaviors and how are we thinking and feeling in those moments? So the goal is to make these, these previously unconscious assumptions more conscious. Um, you know, it's so important to make our big assumptions um, identified and see our bigger assumptions in action. So we can uh, see how they create these, these competing behaviors that are affecting our goals. Uh, you know, we can learn a lot by just noticing those situations, appreciating our reactions and our feelings when they come up and questioning whether or not these big assumptions are like always true, or in fact, they may not be true or may not be always true. So, in, in kind of capturing these observations, 
and capturing them on paper helps us better understand what the kind of what the true current condition is within us as people who are going through the change and kind of prepare us for our next step, which is conducting an experiment. And, you know, if I can just for a moment, just, you know, talk about then taking that next step of once we observe the problem, once we identify what our current situation is, we see it really happening, we feel it really happening, then, then once we take some better, some time to better understand it, um, we can start planning our assumptions. And then we can test how valid these assumptions are. So as we plan these assumptions, we plan these, excuse me, experiments, uh, like we do with any other process change uh, that we're working on, we wanna make sure that we design these well. So then we start to design experiments and, and, and like any experiment, the goal is to learn. It's not necessarily to see improvements right away. Uh, so we're actually testing to see if these big assumptions of ours are actually true or not. And we wanna make sure that these tests are, it's safe. It means it's not gonna cause us any harm if kind of the worst case scenario comes up. Um, they're modest, really meaning that ideally it doesn't cause us to do something that's really hard and out of the way, but kind of more about our daily work. It's actionable. Um, it's something that that kind of researches how accurate is our big assumption and it tests whether or not this assumption is always right. You know, sometimes we, we give it that smart acronym goal of is it safe, modest, actionable researches and tests. Uh, but ultimately what we're doing is we're deeply understanding the current situation, we're observing it, and then it better prepares us to conduct experiments to determine how real is that assumption or how real isn't it, which kind of frees us up then to be thinking differently about our problem. Oh, so Amy, Mike gave us some great examples before of the arthritic and cholesterol issue. So give us an example of an individual's effort to work through their immunity to change. Okay. Well, I worked with a leader once who's who had a pattern of really kind of independently working through issues and then coming to their team with a ready to go solution. And they noticed that this wasn't actually that effective anymore. It may have worked in the past, but now it was really limiting their effectiveness and the leader knew it. And they knew the benefits of involving their team in problem solving and they wanted to get better at it. So, and through the process of this um, um, exploration, they noticed that one of the behaviors that got in the way of their goal was that if they're in a meeting and a team member asked them a question they didn't have the answer to, they got really uncomfortable. And they didn't acknowledge that they didn't know. So they kind of redirect the conversation. They'd ask a question back, really deflecting it. And so when they imagine doing the opposite, so saying, I don't know in a meeting, the fear that came up for them was one of looking incompetent. So they really had a competing goal of not looking incompetent. That's a, that's a big one. That's a real safety kind of competing goal. And continuing that exploration, one of the beliefs that made avoiding this feeling so essential was because they had an unexamined belief that leaders are supposed to have all the answers and that this is what people want from their leaders. So if they don't have the answers, they're not a strong leader and maybe their role is even at risk. 
those are, so you can see how any kind of effort, let's send this person to a uh, um, active listening workshop where they can learn the skills of uh, interacting in a different way. Until that person really tests and examines this assumption about what it means to be a leader, any progress made there is gonna go right back to the old behaviors because that didn't change at all. Wow. That's fascinating. I mean, the idea of you, you got to really look at your root cause and your almost instinctive reaction in different situations and, and how that's affecting you that you don't even know. So that's a great example. So, yeah. And Peter, I'll just add on to that. Please. You know, and that's a, that's a really good example that Amy gives about something like that behavior of asking effective questions, you know, something that catalysis, you know, really talks about a lot with regard to what are key leader behaviors. And, and we all believe uh, with some evidence that, hey, asking questions as opposed to telling, uh, you know, allows ownership to stay with the people who are doing the work, helps people think more effectively, and, and, you know, when in workshops and even when providing support and even talking with uh, uh, folks in the Catalysis Network, it's like, yeah, I get the fact that it makes sense to me that I should ask more and better questions. So like, all right, problem solved. You know, leader identifies that that's a goal for them. Whew, we can move on to the next thing because, you know, they should be good from here. When the reality is, just like Amy gave in that great example, that leaders often then struggle with that. They do things contrary to that. They continue to tell or, uh, you know, to really act more top down. And as opposed to being like, well, bad leader or just, uh, you know, they've just well-worn habits and, um, you know, can't teach them, you know, the new skill. It's like, what's really uncomfortable? What's really behind the situation? And there's something very helpful for that leader that they've developed over the years that has is preventing them from asking better questions and more frequently, like Amy alluded to. And oftentimes our efforts to really change those behaviors aligned with principles is a reads a reads a roadblock that uh, deserves, out of respect for them, uncovering what those are, because it's ultimately, hey, these are good leaders uh, who are doing their best. And I think once we uncover what some of these competing commitments and assumptions are, it can really help free them up to lead a different way. But if we don't, those don't go away. That's, you know, you're, you're talking in, in, in many ways, there's in training the we need to teach you rationally and logically what the steps are, but we also need to make sure that the emotional side, the psychological side, the inherent side also supports that. And, and as you say, does not create a roadblock. So I think that's, that's brilliant. So yeah, and Peter, oftentimes cool. what leaders will share is they're like, I know it. I know this is true, but it doesn't feel true. So you're pointing out, that difference is spot on. Yeah, great. So, Mike, how does this impact a group or a systems effort to change? It sounds like there'd be, you know, obstacles and roadblocks that are almost, almost undercurrent. That, yeah. You know that, that that 
you know, once we get out of the conference room or the training room, come into play in the Gamba. Yeah, and and Peter, oftentimes when we're in the work and we're working on a systemic problem or you know specific process, what we appears to be a process issue, we treat these workplace problems like this arena where only technical problems exist. Like every process problem has this logical technical root cause, which there's this belief that requires this technical intervention. That if we just put the technical intervention in place, we should be good. And, and the reality is often different. And we have a lot of experience in understanding the technical side of the problem. We do process observation, we collect and analyze data, we do root cause analyses, develop interventions, all well and good. You know, and, and, and there are situations where there's both technical and adaptive, but you know, if the problem's only technical in nature, you know, we're well on our way to reaching our goals. I mean, in recent years, there's been a lot of attention paid to change management and certainly these principles of of uh, supporting a change effort through engaging our people in problem solving creating clarity of the why uh, certainly co-creating goals to strive for working in our communication are essential no no question about that uh, these are all important these are all necessary parts of the problem solving process however you know how often is there something else like the example that Amy gave? that's creating a barrier to our group change efforts. So what we're learning is that some of these changes are adaptive, or at least in combination, technical and adaptive, and we need to view it as such. So when the situation requires us to adapt ourselves, uh, often we see these behaviors surface that work against our goal. You know, what this immunity to change can do is help us discover what's our individual or even our group underlying fears that exist, our underlying uh, group competing commitments and big assumptions that are preventing that change from happening. And you know, we can work to address those if we can identify them, if we can see what's actually happening. So like one example that I'll give is uh, like a lot, of, a lot of places are working on throughput. And one problem often identified is batching of work. So a provider is, uh, in particular, will at times like round on patients in batches and then write all their orders, including discharge orders, um, at the end, oftentimes hours after the first patient was seen. You know, I've seen this, you know, more common in academic centers, maybe when it's residents who are rounding, but it happens all over the place. And even in my own practice as a physical therapist, I can relate to doing that same thing. So, you know, to an observer, particularly us lean improvement types, the solution seems technical, it seems obvious. It's just, let's just do one piece flow. Let's write our orders after each patient. And, you know, initially like the providers may resist or they may give it a try, but often those old behaviors gonna win out. And at this point, we're asking somebody to change their beliefs and behaviors. And like, like Amy laid out in that the immunity model, we started asking, okay, why, what underlying fears may exist? I'm gonna fall behind. I'm gonna waste people's time if they're rounding with me uh, and I'm stopping to write orders. Uh, I'm not getting all the patients seen. I'm looked at as being ineffective or inefficient. Okay, and, and then what, uh, looking at then what are the competing commitments that we have that exists 
and what a big big assumptions do we have that are really preventing us from making that change? You know, we can see this example by just uh, how history usually plays out. We just tell the providers to round using one piece flow, and all of a sudden we're shocked when that doesn't bring about the change we're expecting. But really, by exploring some of these immunities, we can get to that adaptive root cause as well, and address both the technical, which is the batching. And then the adaptive, which is their resistance, effect, you know, their competing commitments and barriers as to not wanting to be ineffective, not wanting to waste people's time. And we can look at it from both lenses and through looking at both, it can better address the problem versus just saying, oh, blinders on, this is just a technical change. So just do the lean solution and you should be good. You're introducing a concept of root cause analysis that applies to the individual, remembering that these are people and yeah. every solution not only has technical solutions to it, but it also has the people component as well. So let's let's shift gears. Mike, give us an overview of the workshop. How is it different compared to a typical workshop? So, Peter, when we think of a typical workshop and uh, have conducted many typical workshops, in my life, you know, you have this, say, an eight-hour experience where you learn a lot of new information. You may virtually practice some skills. And then with all good intentions, you go off on your own to either practice and continue your learning. Uh, or, unfortunately, as too often happens, you get consumed by your work and then go back to doing business as usual. Now, further, the amount of content given in eight hours oftentimes is really overwhelming. I don't, I don't know about you, but I've been in many workshops where like my brain has been full by, if not by lunch, but by first break. <laughs> Maybe that's just me, Peter, but, um, but it's been that case where it's like, all right, no more. I think I just wanna go and process and I need time, it's time to practice what I've learned to this point. So what we're trying to do in this workshop is to appreciate the need of participants to take in new information and then practice on a real problem important to them and then reflect with others, learn new information over time and continue the practice. So in order to create this condition, Amy and I are have developed a process where we're going to break this into four different segments. This initial four hours is going to get people started on taking a meaningful problem and completing an initial draft of their immunity map, trying to see what's getting in their way to their goal, identifying what are their competing commitments, identifying some big assumptions that they may have. So from there, then once people have had some time to go off and think about this and further develop what their immunities are, then we'll bring them back for three 90-minute follow-up segments to allow for reflection, learning, further coaching, and then being exposed to some additional content to help support their learning. Uh, so some of these follow-up topics will include uh, observing and experimenting around your big assumptions. How do you do that? Um, how do you use, how to use this practice around system-wide problems? Included adaptive change questions into your coaching and then figuring out okay where do we go here with our existing problem solving moving forward. So I believe by breaking it into to chunks like this, it's going to help people both understand the content, both begin to practice, not overwhelm them, but give them enough to get started on one of their own problems. 
and you know we we recognize that learning to look at problems differently through this immunity lens can kind of be an adaptive change in itself for people it's asking us to adapt and look at our problems differently and that that takes i think some more time some more effort some more thoughtfulness about how we create intention time practice and coaching to do this so Amy, this sounds like a really cool concept because you're right. I mean, after four hours or even two hours or six hours, whatever the number is of workshop, you know, your brain sometimes is ready to shut down. So, but who would find value in this type of learning experience? What do you think, Amy? Well, I think it's a really human experience to have that goal that just seems out of reach for some reason, whether it's a personal or a team or an organizational goal. So really tapping into that that feel, like if you feel stuck on an important goal, this workshop is a good match for you. And to go back to kind of a, a theme through this, you'll come out knowing some more about the background, about the process, about what this might look like in your organization, but you'll also experience it and know what it feels like to be imagining doing the opposite of the behaviors, right? That what is, what's surfacing for you? What's difficult about that? So come to this workshop, you'll know and feel and be in a space where all that's expected and supported. Nice. And I think, especially like for, for healthcare folks, you know, Mike gave examples about the high cholesterol, you know, we work with people who feel stuck. We work with patients who are being asked to make huge lifestyle changes. So even understanding this model of change as an alternative to the just do it model, the New Year's Eve resolution model, well, I think brings a greater empathy and understanding and a different way of supporting patients. Wow. And just, just to add to that, you know, a couple of couple roles I see in organizations, uh, particularly through catalysis that might be uh, interested in uh, attending this workshop. One would be those who are in a position to often teach, coach, and facilitate problem solve. Uh, you know, so that's, you know, a typical process improvement office or others who are in that type of a role to understand more about these adaptive challenges, how to, like you said, Peter, um, identify, help identify, is it an adaptive challenge? And what are some of the ways in which we can get to the root cause of both the technical using great tools that we've learned through you know many catalysis workshops and other experiences and read about for a long time as well as how to get to the root cause of the adaptive so that'd be one role and another role would be operational leaders in particular who are in a role to do a lot of coaching around problem solving so you know for those leaders maybe in that director vice president role who are often the the coaches or the sponsors of problem solving, the more they understand the complexity of how problems present, uh, the better questions that they can ask the people who are owning the problems to better explore hey, what questions like what fears might exist among our key stakeholders that could prevent this change from happening or what behaviors are we seeing that run counter to this and how do we get to what some competing commitments might exist? And how do we engage those people in that type of a dialogue? So, you know, I, I think for a wide variety of different leaders, but those would be two in particular that I could see could get 
real value from this workshop. And I love how this carries forward the whole concept of, um, you know, believing in good intentions. We, we believe people want to do the right thing. It's just there's some many times subconscious things that pop up in their head that they don't even realize that can prevent them from doing that. So, you know, we're getting we're getting close on time. Mike, Amy, any final thoughts you want to share with the gang? You know, one one final thought that I'll I'll share is, um, you know, I've done a lot of reading into different thought, thoughts and thinking around improvement practice over the number of years I've been at this. And once in a while, I come across something and it is like, wow, this is something that I've been missing. That's happened a few times in my uh, improvement career that's run now and I think my 20th year of this. And this is one of those that it's been there's something really key to us understanding the personal uh, change that happens with some of our both both our personal changes, but also our systemic ones. And until we both see uh, what it is and acknowledge it, then we can start experimenting around to address those gaps. So I, I think just this concept just personally has been really a wow as far as uh, my understanding and support of people through problem solving. Yeah, and I echo that 100%. Um, this, this is a uh, process that has been a game changer for me, I've made a number of maps through this process and realized very important things about what's getting in the way of changes I want to make. And also see how it helps those that I'm coaching, those organizations I'm working with. Really, I love how Mike was using the word free up. Free up some of that energy that's just so contained in this system of push, push, push. When we kind of unlock that immune system we free up this energy it's such a, a such a wonderful gift for organizations and for individuals who are really doing important things in the world wow mike amy thank you so much i as i was listening to you i was applying some of these concepts to my as you said mike my personal life right things i'm involved with outside of work and i'm like that that that's kind of cool so thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today thanks for having us peter yeah thank you peter and I want to thank you all for listening to The Lens. Please go to createvalue.org slash workshops to learn more about making change stick and other upcoming workshops from Catalysis. Thank you for listening. Visit createvalue.org to learn more about Catalysis and how we can inspire you to accelerate change in your organization.